because I see it as a long-term prevention strategy to keep kids out of the criminal justice system. Because if we can intervene early and keep them out of gangs and address their traumas and have them be able to focus on a different kind of future, then we will see less children caught up in the criminal justice system, in the you know child protective system. Um, I really do believe that it can make a difference. Welcome to Unloading, a podcast created to share community solutions for gun violence in America. Unloading was created by Gun Violence Solutions of the American Medical Women's Association. I'm Kat, a pre-medical student in Chicago and assistant director of the American Medical Women's Association. And I'm Anorvi, a fourth-year medical student based in New York. And we're here to show you how individuals across America are responding to gun violence in their communities. Today we have with us Laura Drino, who is a deputy city attorney for the city of Los Angeles. She is also the director of child abuse policy and prevention and leads the Children Exposed to Violence Initiative, as well as the REACH team in South LA. Welcome, Laura. We're so excited to have you. Before we talk about gun violence, how did you end up working as a child advocate? Well, I'm excited that you guys are doing this. My background, my interest was in social work and social policy. Um, But then I met someone who was a prosecutor and I was like, oh, maybe as a prosecutor, I'll be able to help more victims. When I was in college, I was going kind of one direction. And then I added poli-sci and went to law school and prosecuted domestic violence and child abuse cases for like 25 years. And then three years ago, the city attorney um, made me his director of child abuse policy and prevention. And he told me, you've helped one child at a time with all of these serious cases. Now I want you to go to Southeast LA and help lots of kids. Mm -hmm. So I I spent probably a good six to nine months just listening. Um, I would go to community meetings. I went to schools. I did presentations to parents and then did surveys um, to find out what they were most concerned about for their children and met with clergy. I mean, I just kind of, like I said, I listened, listened, listened to see, okay, what can I come up with? But I realized after talking to everyone that gun violence was so prevalent, like every single day, every single day in the Southeast community, there were shootings, um, robberies, homicides with guns. And so I realized that kind of my way in was to through gun violence, um, because number one, it was real. It was really a problem and it was affecting children. Um, but it also took any blame off of parents. It's not like I'm saying like, oh, your kids are suffering because of drug abuse or domestic violence, or you're abusing your kids. It was about what was happening outside of their home and what that was doing to their kids, to their kids learning, to their kids trajectory, to 
feeling like their only way they were going to be safe was it to pick up a gun that we needed to really intervene while they were young to stop those things from happening. So Laura talks about Southeast LA and this longstanding history of gun violence there. One of the neighborhoods where her team works is Watts. Kat, I know you did some research on Watts. What did you end up finding out? So Watts originally began as part of a large ranch. And as the railroads expanded, the area developed and eventually became part of Los Angeles in 1926. Until the 1940s, Watts was primarily composed of white and Mexican-American railroad workers. However, the second great migration, which saw a flux of black people from the rural south to the north, northeast and west, switched the demographic to predominantly black. During the Second World War, the city built several large housing projects to house the new workers in war industries. By the 1960s, Watts began to experience white flight as white families moved out of the projects, eventually making Watts virtually 100% black. With a decrease in industrial jobs, the Watts community shifted socioeconomically. In 1965, tension between residents of Watts and the LAPD escalated, and the tipping point was the arrest and use of excessive force on a black man by a California Highway Patrol officer. The incident fueled six days of violent interactions between residents and police officers, what later became known as the Watts Riots. Since then, there have been racial tensions and tensions between the largely African-American community and the police. Gun violence in South LA has deep roots, and a lot of that comes from the history of racism, injustice, and poverty. So how do you do this? What does your team look like? Luckily, Children's Institute which is the nonprofit that's been around for over a hundred years that does a whole bunch of different programs, including mental health counseling for children and supports families. They actually had a campus in Watts, um, which is in Southeast LA. And so I met somebody from Children's Institute at one of my meetings And I knew of them because when I was prosecuting cases, I would have victims go to Children's Institute for therapy. And I was so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Like they're like a vetted, good nonprofit that can be our mental health partner. And then I needed the police to be a partner as well, because I needed them to be able to call us out to a crime scene if they needed us. I needed to know about what was happening. And so between LAPD, Children's Institute, and myself, we created the REACH team. And over the last couple of years, you know, we've tweaked it here and there. And um, like at first, it was only going to be shots fired. Then I recognize, well, it needs to be much broader than that. It needs to be any crime where a gun's involved. So um, so that could be from a robbery with a gun, shooting into an inhabited dwelling, um, shots fired in the air on 4th of July, you know, any homicide, um, any kind of gun violence. Can you walk us through a day in the life of responding to these gun violence calls? Every morning, I start by reading all the violent crime reports from the two police divisions. And then from that, I redact only what is necessary so that we can make contact with the families and send a separate email 
to the lead therapist from Children's Institute and she assigns a care coordinator and therapist to the incident. And then the care coordinator will make contact with the family. We try and touch the family in some way within the first 24 hours of every incident. If LAPD needs us to come to the scene, like right when an incident happens, we will go. So um, right now our funding allows us to, like we're always available between eight and five, and then we're on call from five to 10. So it might take a little longer for us to, it might take an hour, you know, for someone to come from home to get there. Um, but, you know, we will go to the scene if a child needs crisis counseling right then. Um, and LAPD is pretty good. Like they don't call us to every single thing because realistically, sometimes the family is so caught up in everything. They're not ready to accept services at that very moment. Um, but, but we have gone to many scenes where our therapist is able to do, you know, breathing with the kids and um, maybe we bring, you know, art supplies just to kind of calm their central nervous system after an incident. And then we have four to six sessions of crisis counseling. And then the children that are suffering from complex trauma in those situations, we'll put them right into intensive long-term therapy. But after the four to six sessions, if the therapist feels that they need more, then we'll refer them for long-term therapy through Children's Institute. We try and keep it so that everybody is, it doesn't constantly keep changing. But what we also do is we kind of wrap our arms around the whole family and see what does the family need? Are their basic needs being met? Because if their basic needs aren't being met, there is no way that they're gonna be able to focus on their child's mental health. So the care coordinators are also kind of like case managers and we have contacts and connections with lots of different agencies to be able to provide those services. Sometimes it might be you know, a housing situation, they need to move. Um, so we'll work with different organizations to relocate them. Or if it's in the housing developments, the police, uh, the community safety police officers can do emergency relocation requests. So, so we kind of wrap our arms around the whole family and try and get everybody stable after an incident so that the children's mental health needs can be met. Um, we also, Children's Institute doesn't do adult mental health, but we have a couple other agencies where we refer parents um, for that. As a prosecutor, why did you decide to take this on at the community level? Because I see it as a long-term prevention strategy to keep kids out of the criminal justice system. Because if we can intervene early and keep them out of gangs and address their traumas and have them be able to focus on a different kind of future, then we will see less children caught up in the criminal justice system, in the you know, child protective system. Um, I really do believe that it can make a difference. Wow, that's incredible. It's clear that you're passionate about helping children. How do you connect with the children in the communities that you work with? We started in Watts which has five housing developments, um, all within 2.2 square miles. So it is impacted with young people. 
Um, I think the median age there is like 22 or something really wow. young. That's how many minors live in Watts. Luckily, part of the reason that I chose to pilot it there was because LAPD has a program called CSP, Community Safety Partnership, and they are police officers whose main purpose is to engage with the community in a positive way. Um, enforcement is not their number one priority. Um, obviously, if there's a crime that needs to be addressed, they will, but they are there to work with the community. And that's why it's the community safety partnership with the community. So, um, and my reach team during that first year, we would do things sometimes with that programming because the officers are like coaches for like the Watts. Have you ever heard of the Watts Rams? It was like on the no. show and stuff. So the LA Rams sponsors the Watts Rams and the police officers are the coaches. And, um, but they do more than just football. Like they take them places, they do tutoring. They teach them just kind of like life skills, you know, even if they, and same, they have basketball programs and soccer programs. But like we went one time, like we have a kind of like a sports gun violence day. So we'll play with groups of kids, more preteen, like probably like 11 to 18. We'll play like basketball and kickball and something else. And we'll mix it up, you know, reach team members, police officers, kids. And then we'll all sit around and have pizza or something um, outside. And we'll talk about gun violence and how it makes them feel and kind of talk about like coping skills and what do they want the adults to do about it? You know, what do they think? Because if you ask most kids there, they will say to you, almost every kid will say to you, I'm so tired of the adults normalizing it. Like this should not be normal. And, and the older generation there will say, well, that's what happens here. Or like, just, you know, like just get used to it or get over it. And they want that to stop. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about relationships with the police, how they feel about the police, what the police could do better to make them feel more comfortable. What was so interesting to me the first time we did it was listening to a couple of the kids that are on these programs with the police say, like, my parents hate the police. My parents told me, like, basically to hate the police, but I joined this program and I don't hate the police and and the officer is really cool because he knows like if he drives by my house like he knows not to wave or something unless I'm okay with it because he doesn't want to cause me any problems and he's like but if it wasn't for him I wouldn't know how to drive and I'll see the officers out of their own pockets you know buy like cool Nike shoes or something because some kid runs up to them and is like, look at officer, you know, officer Rice, I got my grades up. And they'll be like, oh, looks like you earned a pair of Jordans, you know, and they'll do that. But that's like, those are the stories you never see in the news. <laughs> you know, you never see those stories, but I see it every day when I'm out in, in the community. And I really do believe that this kind of policing could really change things. So that's why we started in, 
in Watts because I felt like we would be more successful in getting the information from the CSP officers and really affecting the community and the housing developments. Once that first year, 2019, and I realized that the community really, they wanted this. They, like I had grown men say to me, where were you when I was a kid? I needed this. In medicine, we like to say, neurons that fire together, wire together. Meaning that the more that a neural circuit is activated, the stronger it becomes. Adverse stress, including exposure to gun violence, can influence these circuits and lead to lasting changes in neuroanatomy and functioning that can manifest as psychiatric disorders later in life. So I feel like like this was a missing piece um, that we just didn't weren't really addressing. And all the, you guys know, cause you're in the medical field, like all of the studies show that while the brain's developing, um, all these levels of trauma can affect a child's developing brain and, you know, puts them in that constant fight or flight mode, which, you know, causes issues for them in school. And, you know, they end up getting diagnosed with, you know, ADHD when they really have PTSD and all of all of those things. And I talked to parents about that. Like you can't expect your kid to walk past a memorial of candles, knowing somebody was murdered there. And then they're supposed to go sit in their seat and learn their times tables. Like that's just not realistic. It's just like, we all know that that kind of trauma has a lasting effect. It can affect the child in, you know, as an adult with relationships, um, when I train police officers um, at roll call trainings or at the police academy and I talk to them about trauma, I will say to them, listen, I know a third of you guys became police officers because you witnessed your moms being beaten by your dad or your stepdad or mom's boyfriend, whatever. And they look at me like, how does she know that? But like, I've talked to police officers over the years and they've told me that's why they became a police officer. And so I explained to them, like, you have your own trauma. And if you didn't work through that, every time you go to a domestic violence call, you're triggered. Whether you realize it or not, you're going to handle that differently than if you had resolved it. You might just go into like robot mode because it's so triggering to you. And I need you to take that few moments to get down on your knee and look that little guy in the eye and say, I'm here to make sure you and your mom are safe. Because if all that little guy sees is you come in in your uniform with your gun and you arrest their dad and take them out, they might be relieved that he's gone for the moment, but they see you as someone who took their dad away. <laughs> and But if you give those couple moments, once the scene is safe and you give that moment to engage with that child in a way that lets them know that you care, just like you would have wanted when you were a kid, that could make a huge difference just in the long-term on relationships between kids and police, because you have to think of it from a child's perspective, the way that they're seeing the scene, they don't understand the full dynamics. Most of, most of the officers want the kids to, you know, to like them or to change that whole narrative between 
the police because I would say morale is pretty low with the police right now. Well, it's good to hear that community policing is addressing those tensions. Can you tell us a little bit about what your team does after getting a call from the police? The first thing we do is we bring a care package to the child. I got a nonprofit to give us, it's called My Stuff Bags. And they're like big blue duffel bags. And they have like a, like either a homemade quilt or a blanket of some sort, a stuffed animal. That's kind of like always a nice thing when we first go out and meet with the families. Um, and we have them all tagged by different ages so that it's age appropriate. And then when we give that, then we can explain in person our services. Uh, we used to just go to the seat or go to their house. But then when COVID hit, we were like, we can't just show up at people's houses during COVID. So we would call first. And then we realized that that was actually a better approach because as long as we were touching them in the first 24 hours and saying, we're here for you and we'd really like to help you and your kids, it, it was a better way because they could say, can you come tomorrow? Can you come on Friday? Can, and, and it gave them some control and they were more likely to accept our services. If people don't want our services, we always ask them, um, can we follow up with you in 20 days? And I've never seen someone say no, probably at least 20%, 20 days later, accept our services. There are families that it takes about three months for them to accept services for their kids, especially following sometimes even the more traumatic events because the parents are still grappling. Like if it's a homicide of a child, like of their 20 year old or something in a gang shooting, they don't want to deal with it till after the funeral. And so we don't want to be press. I mean, do I think the kids could use the crisis counseling during that time period while the mom's falling apart? Yes, but obviously we can't push it and we want to be sensitive to what's best for them. So as the program has grown in popularity, have you noticed more parents taking advantage of the counseling services? The, the first year I was so shocked because 79% of the families that we came in contact with accepted our services, which I was like, wow. Now, since we added domestic violence, our numbers have gone down because we're getting more people saying, no, I don't want your services. Um, and so that's like changed our numbers, but I still want to try because there are domestic violence victims who want help and they want out and they want their child to get services because um, they know that it's traumatic for their kids. So at the end of the day, it's not about numbers in that sense. It's about helping as many people as we can. Um, how, like, how big is the program? Like how many volunteers do you have? Are people, you know, working right. full time, part time? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. Yeah. So, um, when we started the program, we did not have a very big budget. All of our money went to children's Institute so that we could hire therapists and care coordinators. So when we started the program, we had, it was like myself, a Lieutenant from LAPD, and then we had one care coordinator and one therapist, and that was it. And then we were able to get more funding 
now we have five care coordinators. Um, four of them have bachelor's degrees in like public health or sociology or something along that nature. And then one of them has a ton of lived experience. So she grew up in the area. She's very familiar. Her, you know, cousin was killed by gun violence. She, she has that lived experience and she's amazing, honestly, because she gets it. And she's a mom too. And um, they all are bilingual. And then we have two therapists now. Ideally, we'd have probably another therapist and maybe two more care coordinators. Um, that's kind of my goal. And then if we want to expand into more of South LA, because right now we're in a huge part of South LA, but there is a part that we don't cover. And like that captain will call me sometimes. He's like, I know you're not in our area. But we had this happen. Can you guys help? And I'm just like such a softy. I'm always like, okay, we'll help that one. But we really don't have the funding for all of that. We have lots of partners. Like we have an MOA between LAPD, City Attorney and Children's Institute of what our roles are. I feel like you have to have kind of partnership to really be effective. And, and I always say to people, like, I go with, with the therapists and the care coordinators lots of times, because it's so important to me that we be a program that's actually doing what we're saying, not just it looks good on paper, it sounds good to the public, but that we're actually doing the work. To close out, can you tell us about a fond memory you have with the kids in the program? if there's like a shooting where lots of kids are affected by it um you know it's near a school or it's in the housing developments um we'll set up some kind of group type activity um like we did one time we for valentine's day we had like 30 kids from like five to eight or 17 or something um you know and we did like self-love jars where we bought mason jars and then we had all this colored paper and they cut out shapes and they wrote little things about why they love themselves and why what they like about their friends and they could put it in their jar they could put it in their friend's jar and we decorated the room for with all these hearts and stuff we talked about gun violence first um And then we did the project and then it was, and we had like pizza and drinks and we put some like Hershey kisses in their jars too. And, and then it was so cute because afterwards one of the little girls says, can we read some of the things in our jars? And the therapist was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And, oh my gosh, like for an hour, they were like each like, I have one, you know, and then like these two little boys, it was like, they were like 10. So they were, you know, old enough. One of them like pulls it out. And he's like, I didn't know you felt that you felt that way about me or something like that. Like, just, just like that. He's a, you know, he's a loyal friend or something, you know, it said something nice. And, um, and I was so impressed because everybody wrote nice things. Like we didn't have any problems where somebody did something to be funny that was mean or any, everything was nice. And then at the end, the therapist told them, so I want you to take this home with you. And if you're having a bad day 
or you know something's happening in your house that's making you sad or scared i want you to go and pull out your jar and remember and look at it like why you're so important and that you know you are such a good person and what you need to remember to get through and remember this day how we all shared stuff and and it was just really meaningful um and the kids loved it that was incredible thank you so much as you can tell i'm super passionate about it i just love kids and i love like when i was doing trials i love giving kids a voice in the courtroom and watching them go from like the abuse happened to them to the person being held accountable and knowing that everyone believed them and seeing them hold their head high and seeing them smile. Like it was just such a rewarding thing to watch that mm-hmm. progression happen and to feel believed. And so I just, I'm, I feel super lucky. Like I've had like this awesome career where I've got to do so many different things. So. But most lawyers don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we definitely feel inspired by your work. So thank you for sharing. Of course, of course. To learn more about the REACH team, you can visit lacityattorney.org or go to childrensinstitute.org. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.